Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part two of a three-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Session two, the Hellenization. Go Greek, not on your life. I emphasized hell in Hellenization uh, because... For a good Jew, that's exactly what it is. It is hell weaving itself into the sacred. And it is a profaning of that which is set apart. And so to truly understand set-apartness from the Hebrew mindset, this is simply not allowed. Hellenization, for those of you that aren't familiar with the word, and I will go through it in just a second, it means to make things Greek. That's a very simple uh, way of enunciating it, but to make things Greek. So it's not just the Hebrew culture, it was all cultures, to bring in a Greekness to them. And we would typically, in Christianity today, call it secularization. Taking things that are sacred and uh, religiously precious and making them secular. And we can't stand by and do nothing when that's happening. And so what's interesting is I am just as much against Hellenization as any good Jew would be. However, there is something that is happening in the earth at the time that Jesus is arriving that is very significant. And so I want us to meditate upon that in this section. Go Greek, not on your life. I mean, the whole story of the Maccabean revolt is basically standing up against the Hellenization and the uh, indoctrination of Greekness into the Jewish culture and this man and his sons literally stood for years, an extraordinary story, just to stave off Hellenization. Key truth points. So this is a quick review. Key point number one, the Bible is God's idea. Key point number two, the Bible is God's word. Key point number three, the Bible is tested and proven. Key point number four, the Bible is divinely authoritative. Key point number five, the Bible perfectly agrees with itself. Key point number six, the Bible witnesses of Jesus Christ. So... Two languages. In the Old Testament, we have the Hebrew. Now, the, the Old Testament is also written in a bit of uh, Aramaic, which is, again, another Phoenician language, similar. Uh, but long and short, if, just for sanity's sake, we're going to say the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And we're going to call it the first, or the, the hairy. It, it's, it's a very, very impressive language. I mean, profound. It has depth. It has beauty. It has a majesty to it. It is so well constructed. It is truly brilliant. And then you have Greek, the second, the plain. I mean, peasants can understand this. I mean, you don't want to take the high and holy language of God and bring it down to that. The Old Testament. The Old Testament is about the generations of Adam, the patriarchs, the mighty power, the grand king, the glistening temple, the Hebrew. So what I'm doing is I'm bragging up the Old Testament here. I'm showing you that it has a boast. 
Look what we have. Look at our heritage. Of course, I'm skipping a lot of the apostasy that is woven in and all the stiff neckedness that is constantly being demonstrated and all the true stupidity that is demonstrated. By the way, we've shown that in ourselves as well. However, I could have brought that up. But this is what the good Jew is going to tell you. Hey, look at this. We have something to boast of. This book was entrusted to us. We have the covenants. We have the promises. They're ours, and they were written in Hebrew. And they're right. I have to admit, they're right. The New Testament. Ah, it's the generations of a carpenter from Nazareth. A motley band of fishermen and tax collectors. A betrayal, a scourging, a reviling, a crucifixion, and a death. The Greek. That's not very attractive. Of course, I did leave out all the triumph and all the majesty. However, it's very easy at first glance to say the Hebrew high, the Greek low. The Hebrew's first. It has, it comes out of the chute strong. But the Greek, though it looks plain, is the one that is going to reveal to us the glory and the majesty of the Holy, Holy, Holy One. Far beyond that which the Hebrew could ever reveal. That is profound, especially when you look at how plain this language is. How could God reveal his grandeur in and through that? The first and the second. Hebrew, the uncommon language. Koine Greek, the common language. Everything about Hebrew is uncommon. Everything about their culture is uncommon. That's what set apart is. I am not like this world. You are uncommon. You're not like the common. You're uncommon. And so the Hebrew is the uncommon language, whereas the Koine Greek is the common. Everyone knows that. That's the language of the dogs. So let's look at the word common just here real quick. Now, as we look at this, I'm going to give you five different definitions for common. They're all very similar. You'll, you'll recognize all of them if we speak English. At the very end, I have an antonym. The antonym, ironically, is a great enunciation of the Hebrew. So... The Greek is called the Koine Greek, which is the common Greek. And this is exactly what it is. It's ordinary. It's common folk is one way we could say it. Ordinary, normal, average, unexceptional, unexceptional, and simple. Well, what would the opposite of that be? Exceptional. A very common art form, which means usual, ordinary, familiar, regular, frequent, recurrent, everyday, standard, typical, conventional, stock, commonplace, run-of-the-mill, informal, garden, variety. What would the antonym be? Unusual. A common belief, widespread, general, universal, popular, mainstream, prevalent, prevailing, rife, established, well-established, conventional, traditional, orthodox, accepted. What's the antonym? Hidden or rare, mysterious. Number four, the common good, collective, communal, community, public, popular, general, shared, combined. What's the antonym? Individual, private, exclusive. They are far too common, uncouth, vulgar, coarse, Rough, boorish, unladylike, ungentlemanly, ill-bred, uncivilized, unrefined, unsophisticated, lowly, low-born, low-class, inferior, proletarian, plebeian, low-ranking. You could just say Gentile. What is the antonym? Refined. So we have a language over here known as Hebrew. And then I'm introducing you to the common. The Greek. Everything about it is not godly. This isn't the way he would ever be expressed. If any of us are going to take a poll and we're living in ancient Judea, we're not going to choose the Koine Greek. None of us would. God already has a perfectly fine language to reveal himself. No way. Not on your life. 
The Hebrew language, it's all the antonyms of common. It's exceptional, unusual, rare, exclusive, and refined. It's beautiful. It truly is an extraordinary language. I'm not going to teach you on Hebrew today, but all I'm going to say in a summary point is, wow, I am so intrigued by the Hebrew. It's actually a bait, sort of like video games. I, just, I have to stay away from video games because I could easily get it. I'm a Sim City all those years ago. It's just like, I'm just going to take a quick break. And what is this, Sim City? Well, then what? A week later, I'm thinking, dreaming about Sim City. It's like, whoa, you know the Hebrew? I, I study it because I study the Bible. And I want to know it, but there is a bait in it to lure me in to be only Hebrew. It is so intriguing and so fascinating. And I'm here to tell you, I'm giving you a message called the Koine Jesus, very purposely. Because God went out of his way to make it purposeful. Hey, Eric, whoa, whoa, whoa. Make sure you stay on target with what I'm saying. So, this is the Hebrew language. The language in which this grand mystery of God's word was captured. God wrote the words of the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, the set-apart language. A language that itself was supernatural, otherly, brilliant, profound, high, and holy. It was in this language of Hebrew that God revealed his holy, holy, holiness. His blazing perfection and righteousness. His spotless purity and his heavenly truthfulness. How did he reveal it? He revealed it in Hebrew. He chose that as his linguistic carrying device. He did. He chose it. So, I can understand why people would brag about it. Yeah, that's a select language. So, in this language, he revealed the proper name of God. And the people of Israel would not dare even speak this awe-striking Hebrew name out loud, nor even write it for fear of blaspheming it and incurring the wrath of God. God spoke this holy name to his people in Hebrew. Hebrew was the chosen linguistic carrying device for his splendor, a language befitting his majesty. It was a chosen language, just as they were a chosen people. A language that only the people of Israel knew. That's why it's exclusive. Hey, if you're not one of us, you don't have these promises. You don't have these high truths. You'd have to know Hebrew. Well, they're not just going to go out and start teaching classes to the Gentiles. You become Hebrew, and then we'll teach you. It's exclusive. It's only those that are part of that Hebrew nation. And therefore, the word of God was kept from the nations of the earth who lived ignorantly of its mystery, its profundity, and its awesome promises, truths, and revelations. So not only was there not a Bible for 2,400 plus years, but then even when the Bible was written, it was only available to the Jews. It was only for the Hebrew. And as a result, the nations around are kept in darkness. But a great light has shone forth. Understanding terms. So let's go back through history. Right around 2348 BC, Noah enters the ark and shuts the door along with his three sons, Japheth, Shem, and Ham, or Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. So we have a very significant event that is taking place. And you could say, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, one of his three sons, his name is Shem. And Shem also, we could call him the father of the Shemites or the Semites. If you've ever heard of anti-Semitism, a common phrase for being anti-Jewish or anti-anyone uh, who is in the Middle East. That's where the term comes from. It's the descendants of Shem. It's not just the Hebrew, but it's the descendants of Shem. So now you have Abraham, who is of the descendants of Shem, and he becomes known as the Hebrew. Abraham the Hebrew. You see, he is from the other side. 
He wasn't from the land of Canaan. He crossed over and entered into this land, which is actually a very profound name for what Hebrew even means, the one from the other side, especially if you want to think about who Jesus really is. He came as a Hebrew, and he is the one from the other side. And he came to this land, to Canaan, to save us. But Abraham is called the Hebrew, and it means the one from the other side. Well, Isaac is a Hebrew man then. And so Isaac, his son, is also known as a Hebrew. And then we have Jacob, and Jacob, who is a Hebrew, actually wrestles with God, and God himself gives him a new name, which is Israel, the God-grabber, the overcomer. And so now the one, wrestles, the one who wrestles with God and overcomes, his name became the name of the lineage of the Hebrew people. So now the Hebrew people have a name, and they're known as Israel. Jacob's 12 sons, one of which is named Judah, are known as the Israelites, So now we have the Israelites dwelling in the land of Egypt. And yet one of their sons, which is important, is named Judah. And the reason that's important will become apparent as we progress. But Joshua, who is after Moses, so Moses now delivers the people out of Israel. But Joshua is the one now implementing this law. Moses is given a law, and it's a kingdom. Deuteronomy is saying, when you cross over, this is how you will establish this kingdom. And so Joshua begins something we could understand as the kingdom of Israel or the nation of Israel. I should just call it the nation of Israel. And then Saul is the first king. They're begging for a king. Judges aren't seeming to cut it. And so they want a king. God seemed to even have an intent to bring about a king. Could you imagine if God's intent was to make David the first king? But they just weren't ready yet. And then yet they rushed it. The firstborn is always rushing it. The flesh is always in a hurry and they get... Saul, the first king of Israel. David is, when Saul dies, his son Ishbosheth takes hold of the nation, but the kingdom of Judah, remember, Judah is one of the sons. All of the land of Canaan, the land of promise, is divided up amongst the tribes. And one of those tribes is known as Judah. David is from the lineage of Judah. This is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And as a result, all of the people of Judah call David king, and they anoint him king, so he becomes king of Judah. And there's also a nation of Israel, but Ishbosheth eventually is killed, and all of Israel and Judah anoint him king over Israel. So I'm just giving you that separation because that becomes important as we progress too. Now Solomon, the son of David, is just known as the king of Israel. It's called the United Kingdom, all the tribes together serving one king. Solomon... He just sort of blows it. The guy was very impressive, but uh, something went wrong with Solomon. And judgment now is set for the people of Israel because God has promised, if you do these things, if you go in this direction, if you go after other gods, these are the things that will happen. And so actually the kingdom is stripped from Solomon, if you want to look at it that way, and the nation of Israel is divided. So the kingdom splits in Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam is a son of Solomon. But now he only has the kingdom of Judah and Jeroboam, the king of the north, the king of Israel, the other 10 tribes, the king of Judah. They also were the king of Benjamin, little Benjamin, like hung out with uh, Judah. And then you have the Assyrians as we progress, who take the kingdoms of the kingdom of Israel prisoner. So Israel, the northern kingdoms or the 10 tribes are no more. They are disbanded. Now, that isn't necessarily true that they're just lost because many of them returned. Many of them still were there. However, as a formal nation, They are disbanded. 
And then we have the Babylonians. And many of you have heard of the Babylonian captivity. That's because the scriptures are now recording the history of what remains, which is the kingdom of Judah. And so at that point, we have the kingdom of Judah becoming, in a bigger sense, Israel. So Israel and Judah are, in a sense, the same thing. They are one kingdom, but there used to be two. That's why it can be confusing to us. But they are typically known as the Jews, Judah. And so the Babylonians take the kingdom of Judah prisoners. The Jews are carted away to Babylon. So the Jews, those of Judah, that's not how you spell it but I spelled it that way so you could see it, that practice Judaism. So what does a Jew practice? A Jew must maintain the law. To be considered righteous before God, they must keep the law. But if you are, as it says in the New Testament, attempting to keep the law, even on one point, you must keep the whole law. That's how you're justified, so you better do it perfectly. You see, this is the great stumbling block right here in history. The Jews, those that are known as Jews, are those that must keep Judaism. They are known for keeping the law. And along comes Jesus Christ, who is, by the way, the fulfillment of every one of those 39 books. That entire nation was set up to reveal him. And yet when he comes, they don't see him. He's a descendant of Judah and the king of Judah, David. He's known as the king of the Jews. Christians, that's an important term. Well, we're not those of... David, we're not those necessarily of Abraham, we're those of Jesus. We've been grafted in to Jesus Christ. This is our second birth. We are born again in Christ. Just as they were in Adam, they were in Abraham, they were in Isaac and Jacob, they were in Israel, we are in Christ. That's what a Christian is. So what's a Jew and what's a Christian? Gentiles are non-Jews. So that's a term that you'll oftentimes hear. That's just the non-Jews. Well, look at this. This is a big statement I'm making here. A Jew isn't saved by being a Jew. A Jew will never be saved by keeping Judaism. Judaism cannot save. Boy, uh, that, that might get me in some hot water. With who? Well, those that practice Judaism. However, the good news is that Judaism can't save, if you haven't figured that out yet. But there is one that can save, and his name is Jesus Christ. So listen to this. A Jew is saved by believing in Christ Jesus the same way every Gentile is saved. There's only one means of salvation. Do you understand that? Only one. And that is faith in Christ Jesus for the Jew and for the Gentile. The Hebrew word. Now, I'm not just talking about a Hebrew word. I'm talking about the Hebrew word. Like we call the Bible the word of God. Well, this is the Hebrew word of God. The first 39 books. With all its brilliance, it still remained a mystery to the Jews. It needed a key to unlock it. This is one impressive book. If you call it literature, you're massively understating what it is. Even though it is literature, it's written with literary style. It is a book compiled, constructed, architected by the living God himself. But no matter if it is brilliant, no matter if it's constructed by God, it's been proven time and time again, though empires tried to wipe it out, they can't. And yet, they still need a key to unlock it. The Hebrew word itself is not sufficient to bring enlightenment and understanding to the revelation that will truly set men free. Acts 8, And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza. This is in the New Testament. Philip, who's, if you want to say, a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
is commissioned to go and share the good news. Who's he going to? He's going to a Jew. And this Jew is in the wilderness. A great picture of where the Jews are. They're in the wilderness. They can't enter in to the fullness of life because they still are in the law. They still are thinking that the law is what will justify them. They don't know how to separate from that mentality. So Philip goes to the desert, it says, which is desert. And he arose and went and behold a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. And he was returning. So he'd come to Jerusalem to worship and now he's returning. And he's sitting in his chariot and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you read? So this is like the Greek coming to the Hebrew. The Hebrew doesn't understand it. The Hebrew has the words. He's sitting in his chariot. He can read it. It's right in front of him. And he said, this is the Jew speaking, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaks the prophet this. This is all the Jews practicing Judaism. They have a question. Who is it talking about? Who is this? What is it referring to? They don't know. Of himself or some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began to speak at the same scripture. And preached unto him, Jesus. Or, as it would say in the Greek, Isus. That's what he preached. The makeup of the 66 books. The Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. The first 39 books written in Hebrew and some Aramaic. Listen to what it says about the Old Testament. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us somewhere. Where was it bringing us? To Christ. All those 39 books have a singular purpose, and that's to lead you to Jesus. What if you miss Jesus? Well, uh, the Old Testament's rather worthless to you, isn't it? Because its whole point is to lead you to the Messiah. If you miss the Messiah, you're missing life. You're missing everything the Messiah came to do for you, which was save you. The whole point is to lead you to Jesus, that we might be justified. How? Not by keeping the law, not by Judaism, by faith. So the Old Testament is that which proves the power of sin, demonstrates the weakness of the flesh and the inability of man to save himself. The law is a schoolmaster which showcases the need for a saving help from God. The law in and of itself cannot save. It can only lead to the one who can, God himself, particularly Jesus Christ. So the New Testament, we're going to call it the covenant of Jesus Christ or grace. It's the final 27 books written in Koine Greek. It's that which proves the defeat of sin, demonstrates the power of the Spirit, and the ability of God to save man from his lifelong subservience to the control of the flesh. The New Testament is the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. The schoolmaster's thousand years. Now, this is a weird thought. How long has the Bible been around? Well, I said it was written in around 1313 B.C. And you know that at the time when the Bible closes and it sort of ceases in, in Malachi and after Ezra finish, finishes his writings about uh, the Babylonian uh, captivity returning and rebuilding the temple and, and the walls around Jerusalem, that's, that's the end of the Old Testament. It's a thousand years. 
That's it. That's the period of time that the Bible is covering is the schoolmaster's thousand years. God is teaching his people. You know you need help, don't you? Have I made my point clear? This will not save you. You need a Messiah. Why do you think I keep speaking it? There is one that I'm sending to you and he will remove the iniquity of the land in a day. Wait for him. Turn your hopes heavenward. He will come. Believe in him and be saved. So the Old Testament writings cover a stretch of time from Moses to the return of the Israelites from their captivity in Babylon. This is a span of approximately a thousand years in which the nation of Israel demonstrated failure upon failure upon failure. They begged for God to intervene and save them from the cyclical pattern of apostasy, which is turning away from the true God and going after false gods. Then we have four centuries of silence. You've probably heard of the 400 years of silence. That's what follows. You have Ezra and you have Malachi, the final prophet. They speak and then silence. We await the Messiah. 400 years from Ezra's histories and Malachi's prophecies until a man named John the Baptist once again begins to speak the word of God. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and that's John the Baptist. See, this was the testimony, and they spoke until John the Baptist finally came and revealed who it all spoke of. Who did he point to? Hey, guys, you know all that schoolmaster work you've gone through? I'm here to tell you. Here he is. This is him. The Hellenization of the world. To Hellenize, the attempt to make someone Greek in thought, lifestyle, and speech. It's not a good process. Alexander the Great. Look at the years in which he, he lived. Actually, that's not when he lived. That's his ruling season. The 12 years that changed the world and set the stage for the Gentiles to hear the word of God. Something is happening right before Jesus arrives. So Alexander the Great, after his father, who's King Philip of Macedon, was killed in 336 BC, Alexander took the throne of Macedon at the age of 20. In 335, he headed out on an unprecedented military campaign through Asia and Northeast Africa until by the age of 30, he had created one of the largest empires of the ancient world, stretching from Greece to Egypt and into present-day Pakistan. In his 12 years of conquest, he was undefeated in battle. This man was, I mean, amazing. After his death at the age of 33 in 323 BC, he had completely altered the known world and the Hellenization began. Now, whether or not you have a positive opinion about Alexander the Great, something is happening in the world. Right before Jesus is coming, Jesus is set to arrive on the scene at a very specific time. God calls it the fullness of time. And in that fullness, this is part of it. Alexander has already come and he has brought a Greekness. And he actually he was very, he was taught by Aristotle. This man wanted to educate the world to become like his thinking, to become like Aristotle. Reason is king. And so he began the process of Hellenization. And it was a very aggressive process backed by military power. The stage is set. The first time since Babel, one language had become common over most of the known world. Koine Greek. Koine Greek. It's the first time we have Babel way back, thousands of years before. And now suddenly, right before Jesus comes, there is one language. And people can communicate in the same language. Lingua franca is the typical word to describe it. It's called a bridge language used to make communication possible between persons not sharing a native language. English today. Back then it was Koine Greek. And most everyone knew it. It's unprecedented, an unprecedented time in history. Koine Greek, the bridge language. 
the Alexandrian Jews in Egypt. So there were all these Jews in Alexandria, which is one of the capital cities of Alexander's great empire, where they were going to begin to teach Hellenization and Greek thought. It was in Egypt, of all places. And so in Egypt, with these Alexandrian Jews, some of them the greatest scholars of their day, the king of Egypt, known as Ptolemy II, actually commissioned 70 of them, some say 72 of them, to actually take the ancient Hebrew text and translate it into Koine Greek. And it was probably under threat of death as well. However, these rabbis did it. And it was done over 150 years. This is one massive project. The word of God had always been hidden in Hebrew. Always. It was exclusive. It was rare. It was hidden. But for the first time in all of history, right before Jesus comes onto the scene, the sacred words of the Hebrew are translated into Koine Greek. It is known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint, typically shown as LXX, which means 70 or the 70. From around 300 B.C. to 132 B.C., this is being prepared, this is being worked on. So right around 132 B.C., it happens. For the first time, the word of God is expressed in the language of the Koine, the common, the Greeks, the Gentiles. Now, if you're a Hebrew, you might not be overly excited about this. We'll call it the great condescension. Because if you're a Hebrew, you're like, no way. Will the holy, holy, holy word of God be desecrated to be expressed in a dog's language? Never should it ever be spoken in that language. And yet, here it is. The word of God is made vulnerable in a Greek language. So the great condescension, that which is holy, untouchable, mysterious, and exclusive becomes, this is my way of showing awkwardness, uh, human, uh, approachable, touchable, and available to uh, <clears throat> everyone, in, including the Gentiles. No, no way. God would never do that. You know that the gospel hinges on the fact that he did? You don't have any hope in this world unless he condescends. Unless that high and holy Hebrew comes down and becomes lowly. What does God think of the Septuagint? Isn't that an interesting question? Well, it's sort of hard because I can't just have a discussion with God on that point. But some of you are already cheating and reading my little uh, subtitle here. Well, the Holy Spirit, when carrying along the writers of the New Testament books, quotes from the Septuagint around 340 times in the New Testament canon, as opposed to 33 times in the Masoretic Hebrew text. And what I could say is, any questions? The Spirit of God quoted from the dog language. He didn't quote from the Hebrew. That is weird and purposeful. God didn't accidentally do what he was doing. He was saying something very specific. You want to know why the Jews stumbled? Ah, we can come up with quite a few reasons. However, God did it. It would appear that God is unashamed to speak in the Koine Greek. Yeah, I would have to agree. God is unashamed to speak in this language. So key point number seven, the Bible wasn't written accidentally, but very much on purpose. God chose this language. God, even if you want to say that Ptolemy II was acting on the part of Satan to take the Hebrew word and bring it down to the Koine, God leveraged that. He leveraged that to reveal his nature. Key point number eight, the Bible is for all 
people. That's a shocker. The Bible is for all, even the ancient Hebrew. It's not just exclusive. It's not meant to be rare and mysterious and hidden for ages and generations. It's meant to be revealed to all. And the Bible is meant to be understood by all. And key point number 10, this is a strange one, the Bible is translatable. God himself seems to endorse the idea of translation in how he writes the New Testament. Think about it. Here's the twist. God's word becoming koine is utterly blasphemous to a good Jew. But this is exactly what God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ did. And to a Christian, the fact that God's word became koine is the essence of the gospel. The Old Testament began around 1313 B.C. when the word of God was written on a tablet of stone or tablets of stone. Listen to this. Think about how the New Testament began. The New Testament began around 0 A.D. I know that we don't exactly know the date in which Jesus was born. When the word of God was conceived in the womb of a young girl and written on tablets of human life. How did the New Testament begin? With the finger of God. He started this new covenant. And he started it in a very lowly form. The Old Testament begins with the story of creation. The New Testament begins with the story of the new creation. The Old Testament is about the generations of Adam, the firstborn, dead in trespasses. The New Testament is about the generations of Jesus Christ, the twice-born, the resurrected. The tablets of God written stone were laid in an ark plated with gold. The word of God in flesh was laid in a feeding trough. Something built, designed not for the purpose of the sacred. God was laid there. The giving of the law took place on the very first Pentecost. You know, that's what Pentecost was. It was actually a celebration of the giving of the law. Yes, it's the wheat harvest as well. But when you're in the wilderness, you're not celebrating a lot of wheat harvesting. And the great promulgation of the law of Moses began. And all these 1,350 or so years later, the giving of the Spirit, Pentecost, took place on the same exact day, nearly 1,350 years later, and the great promulgation of the gospel of grace began. The giving of the Old Covenant was on the untouchable, unapproachable mountain presented in the language of Hebrew and for the Hebrew alone. The giving of the New Covenant was in the midst of the crowded city available to everyone the world over in their own tongue. Jesus, the living word. This is not just a text. This is a person come to life and revealed by the Holy Spirit. And he is revealed as lowly, approachable, humble. It is shocking and can we even conclude that it's correct? If you don't, you have no part with him. Unless he comes and washes your feet, he can't wash you. We start with this premise that he has come and taken such a lowly position to wash our feet. He chose the Koine Greek, simply put. Christianity, the living epistle. And where does he write his word? On us. What's his paper? What's his parchment? What's his scroll? The human life. He takes his holy divine word and where does he write it? <clears throat> On us? You want to talk about lowly? I'm not trying to put us down, but I sort of need to. We're lowly. We are not befitting of the high and holy revelation of God. And yet he chooses us as his parchment. And we are called living epistles to express his revelation to the world. His choice and it's on purpose. Thank you so much for listening to part two of this three-part message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. 
If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.